Let me tell you a story, podcast number 18. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long it is. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. During this session, we're excited to have author Peter Lavelle read from his latest release, West for the Black Hills. West for the Black Hills by Peter Lavelle. Chapter 1. Spring, 1873. Terror froze my soul as I peered from under a bush. Through the darkness, I could just make out the rider. His moccasin tapped the side of his horse, and he rode toward me. Moonlight reflecting off the horse's white blaze. Despite the cool night, sweat dripped into my eyes. I bit my tongue to keep from crying out. My breath came in involuntary heaves, and I shivered so that the leaves of the bush shook. I stared at the bow and quiver full of errors tied to his naked back. His horse stopped behind the bush. He hefted his lance and poked just past my arm. Should I attack him? At ten years old, I was a small target for his arrows. In the distance, our wagon burned, my parents' bodies lying nearby. I choked back a sob. Outlaws had killed them, and I had run, only to face Indians. The warrior swung his lance hard and hit my side. I couldn't control the surge of panic, and before I could think, my legs darted from the bush, taking me with them. The Indian swerved his horse to cut off my escape, and I veered to the left. He was quicker. I spun, but he thrust his long spear at my feet, and I slammed into the grass. I backed away, crawling as he approached. He looked down and pointed the weapon's tip at me. Taha Nadapi. I shook my head. Come here. Trembling, I stepped forward. He lowered the lance and pointed toward the river. Go. Silhouettes of four more Indians on horseback appeared like ghosts in the soft silver light. I walked toward them. They would scalp me, then roast me over a fire. Everyone at home in West Virginia knew the savages in the West enjoyed torture. Children, their favorite target. My parents' death by bullet seemed easy and painless in comparison. Perhaps the outlaws who had just killed my mother and father would fight these natives, and then I could escape. They led me away from the river, out from the bushes and trees, and into the open prairie back toward the wagon. Its orange glow filled the night. Flames leapt from the canvas into the dark sky. The fire reached to the stars. The wagon had been my home from West Virginia to the Dakota Territory. As we approached, heat singed my skin. Blacksmith tools lay strewn about the campsite, and I knew my father would be angry that his tools had been left out, if he were alive. A wooden maul lay at my feet. I picked it up, took a deep breath, and dove into the inferno of the burning wagon. The fire above roared like an angry bear, and the flames licked my body. At the other end of the wagon, the wood crackled and flung sparks, burning flour, blankets, and clothing. I lifted the maul and swung it at the floor. 
The hammer bounced off the planks and stung my fingers. I reached back and slammed it down again. A crack split along the middle. Heat washed over me and I felt like a wilted plant about to burst into flames. I fought the rising terror and with a few more blows, the floorboard shattered. I reached into the family hiding spot and pulled out our red wooden box. The heat, furious, nearly melted me. I backed out of the wagon, choking from the dense smoke that swirled over me. Strong hands wrapped around my arms and pulled me from the sweltering blaze. One axle gave way, and the wagon tipped. After a few moments, it collapsed into a fiery heap. The flame crumpled in a shower of sparks. I sat with my fingers over my face. A numbness filled me, and the shakes stopped. The Indians knelt over my parents' bodies. Stop! I jumped up. Stop it! Don't take their scalps! I made a dash for them. A lance struck me from behind, and I crashed to the ground. They look for sign. The Indian who'd found me pulled back the weapon. I stared up at him. Sign? He waved his arm over the campsite. Track those who have done this. The four Indians with rifles got to their feet and approached us. They spoke to each other. The one who'd found me and knew English signaled, and then the four men disappeared into the darkness like ghosts. My guard stayed behind. I reached for the red box and clutched it close. What was I to do? All I wanted for this Indian was to, for him to go away and I could do something, anything. I couldn't think with him so close. He reached down, picked up a shovel, and hefted it in his hand. He considered the tool for a moment, then gazed at me. He held it out, motioning toward his heart with his other hand. Dig. Help you. I didn't dare disobey. I set the box on a rock took the shovel, and near a small pine sapling that only reached my hip, I drove the shovel through the thick grass. I wiggled the handle to drive the tip deeper, then lifted a small amount of grass roots and red dirt. In the firelight, I could see the tiny branches of the tree shake as I worked. The Indian dropped to one knee beside me, and with a chisel he'd found near the burning wagon, broke up the ground. After digging for some time in the waning firelight, a rustle in the grass caught my attention. The other Indians stepped back into the light from the glowing embers. They spoke to the lancer. I leaned against the shovel to study them, waiting. They were discussing how to kill me. Glances my way told me all I needed to know. The fire died as they talked late into the night. I tossed dirt into a pile at the foot of the hole, shovelful after shovelful, until the wagon's firelight died and darkness covered us. I felt the warrior's presence and glanced up at his shadow, outlined by stars. It is deep enough, he said. Come, gather what you need. I dropped the shovel. He held out a large leather pouch. I slid the box inside and then looked for anything else that could be of value. I turned and my parents' bodies were gone. Two of the men were pushing dirt into the hole. I took a step toward them, but the Indian stepped in my way. He motioned to his chest, running deer. I tried to rush past the English-speaking Indian, and he grasped me with strong hands. I struggled until I saw they were burying my parents. I sagged. Philip, Philip Anderson, are you going to murder me? No. Then let me go. I wanted revenge, to kill those outlaws, all of them, every bad man in the entire world. Running Deer picked up his lance and straightened. You are brave. In the darkness, I could barely make out his gesture toward the other Indians. Those who did this have to escape. Too much head start. My knees buckled and I crumpled to the ground. No tears came. I would get them. Somehow, somewhere, I would kill them all. 
every one of those outlaws, their faces seared into my mind, would die by my hand. What better way to learn to kill than from an Indian? Maybe they would teach me. Despite my exhaustion, I rolled over and got up. It felt like a dream as I picked up a hammer and chisel from my father's blacksmithing tools and in the shallow light chipped a rough cross into the rock beside my parents' grave. I looked up and the morning light shone on a towering stone column in the distance. It thrusted itself into the sky like a single bright flare, higher than anything I'd ever seen before. The top touched the clouds. I glanced at my parents' grave and the giant monument in the distance. The tower burned itself into my brain. Chapter 2 Somehow I'd always believed west was the direction all Indians traveled, away from the Mississippi River, away from the cities, toward the open, untamed lands the savages fought furiously to defend. But with me on an extra pony they'd found in a nearby rancher's barn, these Indians pressed toward the settled east on their horses. Eat. Running Deer held out a dried piece of meat. I squeezed my eyes tightly on the pony's bare back, reached out, and took the food. It tasted like deer. The riders traveled without a word, but I couldn't help questioning them. Why east? Wouldn't you be shot and killed? They rode in silence. I won't join your tribe. Another, other than the beat of the horse's hooves as we crossed the wide prairie, quiet cloaked our passage. The wind bent the grass, blowing around my hair and chilling me. My mother's smiling face appeared in my mind, and I burst into tears. The sun crossed the sky, and I rode in miserable silence. As evening turned to night, my eyes closed to the soft rhythm of the pony's steady gait. I almost fell asleep. The pony stopped. I looked up, saw the Indians dismounting in the darkness, and rolled off my beast. Sleep, running deer said. Tomorrow I tell you a story. I did sleep, utterly spent. In the morning after breakfast, before more dried venison, we mounted and he talked of his tribe. They were Minikanju, a Lakota Sioux group that had banded with another Sioux tribe, Hunkpapa. He motioned to the west, sitting bull, great warrior of Hunkpapa, asked us to talk to agent in east, so white man will stay away from Pahasapa, our hunting grounds. Why take me? Am I going to be an Indian? For the first time, a smile cracked the thick exterior of the savage. You will not be harmed, Mayaka. What's Mayaka? Wolf, prairie wolf. He motioned toward my eyes. While people had often mentioned my intense slate gray eyes, it was the first time I'd been named for them. I lowered my head. He spoke of his tribe and talked through the day while the others rode along without speaking. I found his tone comforting. He taught me several Lakota words. For three weeks we traveled, sometimes north, other times east. One day I realized I liked running deer, even his friends. This somber warrior filled the void that was left by my father and mother's death. His sinewy arms, long hair, and dark eyes filled my thoughts, and I stayed close to him. It was no wonder I picked up the warrior's language, learned their ways of hunting and fishing, and respected their ideas of warfare. These men had become all I had in the entire world. Running Deer told me his men believed my wolf eyes gave them extra power when hunting and fishing. I watched his hands quick and powerful. I knew if my hands could be as fast, revenge for my parents' death someday would be easier. Every night I dreamed about their murder and wondered if I could have stopped it. 
the flat prairies turned to rolling hills, and we crossed them without seeing another person. Soon, farmhouses dotted the wide expanse, tiny hovels made of sod or planks, boasting of the home my father wanted but would now never have. A small town was nestled between two hills, a swollen stream flowing nearby. We rode down the wide street that divided two rows of businesses. Town folk paused to watch the small group of Indians wearing a single feather in their hair, rifles in their scabbards, bows on their backs. A few men with hands on pistols stepped forward, but no one stopped us. Running Deer paused, looked at me, and reached into his leather satchel. From it, he withdrew a faded paper. He sniffed. Where is this? I looked at the paper and could barely make out an address. I'm not sure. I glanced around and saw a young man in the white sh- and white shirt stained with sweat. Sir, could you tell me where this is? The man snatched the slip and held it up so the sunlight touched the page. Could have guessed, blasted Indian agent. Always getting this kind in town, he said, motioning towards running deer. The agent's back on third. Turn round, take a right, fifth house on the left. He looked at me. Boy, you gotta leave these Indians. They'll kill you. I ignored him and he dropped the paper, spun around, and returned to his shop, mumbling as he went. Leaving the paper on the ground, I looked up at my traveling companions. Follow me. I walked, my pony trudging along as I led him by the thin leather reins. We crossed the street, found third, and I counted the houses until we arrived at the fifth house. A small sense of pride filled me as the Indians trailed behind. They needed me. A porch wrapped around the front of the house, and I stepped onto it. Should I knock? Running deer gave a single nod. I wrapped my knuckles on the wood panel. A man opened the door and peered out. His bald head shone in the sun. I could see my reflection in his tiny spectacles, which he adjusted. He licked his lips. Yes? The man was almost as small as me. Running deer stepped onto the porch, his moccasins making no noise on the wooden planks. His naked chest looked out of place in the civilized town. We come to see Mr. Preston. Of course, of course, come in, yes, come in. I'll see if he's available. The tiny man left the door open for us and disappeared down the long hallway. Running Deer and I stepped inside and entered the parlor. The others waited outside, rather trusting, I thought, leaving an Indian and a small boy alone in the parlor. After weeks of sleeping under the night sky, the confines and of the papered walls felt suffocating. I stepped closer to Running Deer and brushed against his buffalo skin leggings. The sound of boots pounded down the hallway and the small man stepped around the corner. He will see you now. Running Deer looked down at me. Wait. He followed the man. After a moment, the small man returned, a mug in his hand. You've been living with the Philistines. You need milk. Drink up. How living with Indians made milk necessary, I didn't know, but the mug was cool in my hands and the milk white and thick on my tongue. I stood in a corner facing the man, a small fireplace to my right, an elegant red chair to my left. The sweet perfumes of the house made me aware of my own outdoor smell. The horrors you must have seen, boy. What's your name? The horrors? Running deer had been teaching me to track animals, fire a bow, throw a hatchet, skin a deer, speak his language, and a hundred other bits of life on the prairie. I shrugged. Soon you'll be safe. He smiled and licked his lips again. I set my mug on the hardwood floor and shook my head. I didn't want to be safe. Running deer was my life now. I was about to scamper by the small man when running deer stepped around the corner. He leveled his dark eyes at me. Agent Preston, speak to him. I don't want to talk. You must go. I wait here. 
the long hallway stretched before me, an open door at the other end. After a few strides, I turned and looked back toward my friend. He motioned his hand toward the room as if impatient for me to finish what he'd begun. After a deep breath, I walked into the Indian agent's office. A wide, dark desk stretched across the floor. Behind it, a large man studied a map that spread over his desktop. I peered at the lines drawn on the yellow paper. It was a map of the United States. The Indian agent looked up. Despite his wide waistline, he dashed across the room and grabbed my elbow. Sit down here, boy. His voice was gruff, but his grip crueler. He threw me into a chair. Tell me everything. Leave nothing out. I hesitated. He drew up his bulk and hovered over me. Tell me now. During my time with the Indians, I'd pressed the past to the back of my mind, far from my thoughts, only remembering my family and my dreams. But this man forced the memories to flood back. My parents bought land near Yankton. We're from West Virginia, and my father, he was a blacksmith, thought he would make a go of it in the West. The long wagon ride crossed my mind, the dust, the hunger, the thirst, the agonizing boredom. And that night beside the river, a quiet night, my father read his Bible while I helped my mother cook over the fire. They had come out of the darkness into the firelight with gun drawn. We've no money, my father had said. Wrong answer. The gunman's pistol flashed with a blast that reverberated off the trees along the river. My father fell back, grasping his belly. With a scream, my mother, sizzling pan in hand, charged the man. Another explosion rocked the night, and she fell. When she didn't move, I slipped away toward the river. I wiped tears from my cheek with a sleeve. If running deer hadn't found me, I would still be out there, dead. The man looked at me for a moment as if considering my story. With a deep sigh, he stepped behind the desk and opened a drawer. He pulled out a Bible and held it out. Swear to me that all you've said is true. If you lie, your eternal soul will rot in hell, and the demons will make sure you never see your parents again. I choked. With a shaking hand, I touched the Bible. I swear I'm not a liar. He pulled the Bible back and nodded as if satisfied very well. His tone softened. Are you sure it wasn't the Indians who killed your family? I reached for the Bible again. It wasn't running, dear. He held the black word of God against his chest. No need to swear, I believe you. He sighed. You see, Congress has said the Black Hills were to remain Indian land. He leaned against the desk and motioned toward the front of the house. These Sioux say settlers are looking for gold in the hills. I shrugged and with some effort tried to put forward my opinion. Running deer is not a farmer. He needs the land to hunt on. A smile crossed the man's face. But if there's gold in the Black Hills, his voice trailed. I was about to send Lieutenant Colonel Custer into the hills to find out if rumors were true. He leaned forward. You didn't see any gold, did you? I shook my head. We hadn't been in the Black Hills yanked and was on the east side of the Dakota Territory, the Black Hills on the west. Well, it seems like you've been well-treated in any case. He returned the Bible to the drawer. We've an orphanage in the Fort Madison where you will learn a trade, become a contributor to society. My future, I'd taken it for granted, was with running deer. No, thank you. I'd better be going now, I stood. Sit down. He placed both hands on the desk. There's nowhere for you to go. I will care for you here. I took a step toward the door. Running deer will take care of me. That's where I want to go. You will blacksmith for me. I scratched the side of my head, thinking. 
What family could I go to? All I knew was of an uncle in Sioux City. I have somewhere I can go. Running Deer will take me. The second you're out of this office and away from my protection, you will die. He snapped his fingers. They will kill you now that you have served their purpose. You are simply a token of goodwill, an indication that they can behave civilized. But now that you're unuseful and your usefulness is over, I reach for the door handle. I'll take my chances. My place has two meals a day. With your blacksmithing, you can make it three. Your place? A grin crossed his wide face. That's right. I own the orphanage. You can't just own an orphanage. I pulled on the doorknob. Locked. This is for your own good. He stepped around the desk and reached for me. I jerked away, but he grasped my arm. With a grunt, he hauled me away from the door toward a side window. He threw open the lock and slid the glass up the tracks. No, leave me be. You'll thank me for this later, boy. Running, dear, help. I fought against the man, his grip like a blacksmith's vice. He thrust his leg through my leg through the window. Quiet now. No need for informing the whole town. The knob on the door rattled, and in less than a second, it flew open. Running Deer stood in the doorway, his gaze locked on the Indian agent. He's trying to take me to become his blacksmith. I tugged hard, loosening his grip on my arm, and rushed toward the Indian. He wants to take me to his orphanage. The man crawled back through the window and lunged at me. Running Deer lifted an arm and threatened to bring his brown hand down on the agent's head. The agent backed away. We left town. Surrounded by Sioux warriors, I reached up and took Running Deer's hand. I smiled at him, and even though he had showed no emotion, I believed he was pleased. Life with him would be perfect, and the tightness in my chest rolled away. I would be an Indian forever. Thanks, Peter. Our previous podcast featured Gwyneth Bledsoe's British mystery novel about horse racing and jockeys titled Death at the Races. Today we have another jockey story for you. This one is a short story by Laurie Bauer called The Zucchini Kid. Seems we have a bit of a horse theme going today. The Zucchini Kid, apprentice jockey Stretch Reed. Blonde, 19, acne-spangled, slithers from the racing track sweatbox looking like a staggering skeleton camouflaged by a sticky gray vinyl vest. Rivers of costly water cascade down his bumpy cheeks and pool on his twice-broken collarbone like stagnant dreams. The room spins. Shuffling on breadstick legs, he leans against a four-by-six-foot cubicle of splintered shelves and rusty hangers next to the sweatbox. He ferrets for a towel, skimming over chocolate, strawberry, and pina colada powdered slim-quick canisters, Airs ultra-dry deodorant, consort hairspray, and Compton's baby powder. He spies a fraying blue terry cloth square and swipes it over his neck and face. Removing his sweat vest, he meanders past rows of black, blue, and red miniature saddles that smell of foaming saddle soap and oily neat's foot. He plunges his hand into the frosty ice bin and delves out a handful, rubbing ice vigorously over his scalp and neck while his right calf spasms. With spidery, pencil-thin fingers, he reaches down to massage the charley horse and catches a glimpse of his friend's cubicle. Stretch grins and tosses the remaining ice into the toe of Tiny's left riding boot. At his own cubicle, Stretch digs through the bottom of the open closet. 
He pulls out child-sized black boots, caressing the velvet smooth leather. He runs his fingers around the patch on the left heel. He looks around the cubicle. His safety vest, helmet, and goggles, all bought with his own money, hang on separate nails. Hanging to his left, a lime green jacket spells out Sam's Town, Las Vegas, in shiny black. Thumbtacked to a shelf in front of him was a picture of car-crippled Willie Shoemaker in a wheelchair after he won four derbies, two Preaknesses, and five Belmont Stakes. Next to that dangles a photo of Gary Stevens in the winner's circle atop winning colors at the 1988 Kentucky Derby, signed to stretch, hoping you break your maiden soon. In a few weeks, Stretch will lose that jockey's call bug status and will break his maiden, as Gary Stevens suggested, when he finishes his apprenticeship year. To celebrate, his fellow jockeys will smear him with black shoe polish, a precious labeling that burns the skin and takes weeks to wear off. In the meantime, being a bug boy demands five pounds less flesh than that of a full-fledged jockey. Maintaining that weight is a killer that includes leg cramps, headaches, ulcers, and rotting teeth. He barely has the strength to pull on his slippery, skin-tight boots. Other jockeys arrive. Showers gush. Jockeys banter. Yeah, sure. In your dreams, Congress isn't going to lower taxes permanently. That's like saying they're going to stop cutting down trees. It's inevitable. You think you're so smart. Who'd you vote for in the last election? Hey, everybody's entitled to blow it once in a while. Uh Uh-huh. So don't compound your errors by telling me what Congress is going to do. The quarreling continues, volumizing as tensions grow. Other ant-like jockeys scurry and prattle. A whoop, and who's the wise guy? Tells Stretch that Tiny has found the ice. Stretch forces the corners of his mouth into submission and polishes his boots, eyes averted. Tiny eyes him suspiciously. Stretch rinses off sweat in the shower and dresses quickly. He snatches his goggles and helmet and then mounts the Toledo scale with lettering on the front that proclaims, Honest weight, no springs. The honest weight scolds at 111 111 pounds. Only two of the extra four pounds has seeped away in the sweat box. Stretch mentally lashes himself. Shouldn't have wolfed down that piece of huckleberry pie. It stuck to my ribs like a saddle pad to a sweaty equine back. He considers sticking a finger down his throat, but, ragged and raw, his mouth and throat already burn. Okay, who took my goggles? Someone yells. From a nearby radio, Billy Ray Cyrus bellows out, My achy, breaky heart. Would someone turn that radio down, please? Another voice demands. Someone in the shower wails, I think I'm going to love you for a long, long time. Tiny approaches Stretch. Think you're real funny. From the edge of fissured lips, his cigarette droops, pointing at Stretch's toes. Stretch grins at Tiny. Now and then, he brushes his sparse, bristly chin hairs with thumb and forefinger. Well, try this on for size. Tiny brings his ice-filled left hand, the one with the tarantula tattoo creeping along the arm, from behind his back and pushes it down Stretch's shirt. Stretch hops around like he's been stung by bees. Ooh, I'll get you for this. Tiny giggles and smiles, highlighting a missing tooth, a casualty of last year's fall in the 10th race. The loudspeaker blares over the jockey den. 
10-minute call for the first race. That's me, Stretch says. Gotta get busy. But don't think you're off the hook. He narrows his green eyes, shakes out the ice, and tucks in the shirt tail of his number four yellow silks. Never. Tiny nods and pats his shoulder. You're going to do it tonight, you know. I can feel it. Thanks. He's right, Stretch thinks. This is my big chance to win my first race. I break my maiden. Maybe I'll finally make the hometown papers and give my father something to brag about for a change. Always knew that kid was destined for great things, Dad would boast to the media. Shoulders pushed back, cleft chin held high. Even when he was five, he showed promise as a rider. As a 16-year-old, Stretch was nicknamed the Daredevil, having been bitten by a stallion at seven, stepped on by a filly at nine, thrown twice breaking colts at 15, all resulting in a black goose egg at seven, a cracked toe at nine, a concussion and a broken tailbone at 15, but nothing deterred him. Even God cooperated. Stretch didn't grow to be the linebacker his dad always wanted. Instead, he had the necessary physical handicaps to be a jockey. Didn't go to college either, but then school was miserable for him. He was taunted with pipsqueak, mighty mouse, zucchini kid, wimp, beaten by bullies and ignored by angel-faced girls who went for the football types. Stretch got into racing through the back door. His snaggletooth girlfriend's slug-bodied sister worked for a slave driver named Mr. Joe, who trained horses for a living. When Stretch met Mr. Joe, there were introductions all around, and Joe watched as Stretch successfully exercised his horses. Of course, nothing he did was ever good enough for Mr. Joe. But Stretch listened and learned. He had an organic way with horses and understood horse psychology without books. Mr. Joe called him a natural and introduced him to Dr. Wright, the track manager, who decided to allow Stretch to train as a jockey. Stretch shakes baby powder into his boots and gloves. Who cares about the past? Today he feels like a winner, not just another bug boy. He'll be running on a two-year-old bay sired by a Seattle slough named Buns of Steel Slough, with the fastest time on the track at seven furlongs. For the last month, Stretch has been riding slough, and the horse just keeps getting faster. The first time Stretch met the monster slough, his knobby knees shook and his heart did front flips. The muscled thoroughbred stared, snorted through its head in vicious circles, and pawed the ground. Jockeys knew what this beast could do, what tricks it pulled. It could coil its head around and place a wet nose on the rider's boot, then chomp down on the toe and, while the victim writhed in pain, initiate a bout of bucking until the rider fell off. After throwing every jockey at the small western track known as Camel's Back Park, as well as the trainer, the owner jokingly agreed that slew should be sold to the lowest bidder. The jockeys found it funny that Stretch wanted to tame slew. Fool, said one. The kid's crazy, said another. As if a bug boy can do what we couldn't. All I can say is he must enjoy broken bones. Stretch remembered a black colt back home that loved to bite its rider. So he stuffed a hand towel in his back pocket, grabbed a rubber curry comb, a hoof pick, and a handful of baby carrots. He calmed Slew by talking softly to him, stroking him and caress caressing his coppery coat with the curry. The horse snapped huge jaws at the tiny man, showing a plethora of immense incisors like rows of shiny sentinels. 
Stretch wanted to turn and run, but instead he offered slew carrots. Puzzle, the horse cocked its head and took the carrots. After picking Slew's hooves and tacking him up, Stretch mounted the terror of Camel's back park. The horse coiled back its head and placed its nose on the jockey's boot as predicted. Stretch whipped out the hand towel, quickly throwing it over the horse's face and eyes, tucking the top over the brow band before Slew could bite. Slew's head flipped back around, but the towel stayed put. The horse continued trying to shake its head to loosen the towel, and Stretch put constant pressure on the bit to prevent the velvet muzzle from lowering to a bucking position. Slew writhed some more, then stood still, every muscle twitching, nostrils flaring. Stretch sat on the horse for a full five minutes, waiting for the animal's adrenaline to subside. He stroked the horse's neck and spoke softly to him, scratching him behind the ears. Well, boy... Are you ready to ride? He finally said. He reached over the top of the horse's head, grabbed the bottom of the towel and pulled it up, tucking it in over the brow band. The towel's going to stay, just in case. Slew hopped a few steps. Stretch soothed. It's okay, boy. Just relax. Easy now. Within 20 minutes, Stretch and Slew were galloping around the warm-up track, minus the towel. Everybody stopped to watch. Someone called the owner, and he pulled up in his Lincoln, his horseshoe-shaped diamond pinky ring flashing in the sun. Who is this kid? A bug boy, you say? Yeah, pretty embarrassing, Tiny commented. He did what no one else could do. Thus begins Slew and Stretch's relationship, nicknamed the Double S Team. When Stretch approaches the horse now, there's no pawing or bared teeth, only whinnies and nuzzling. If he asks Slew to move out, the horse gives 110%, moving like melted butter and beating every record at Camel's Back Park in practice laps. The horse never needs a crop or snake hisses. A simple squeeze and whispered, let's go, unveils his high gear. Sometimes their souls in sync. Stretch has only to think what he wants the horse to do, and Slew responds. He still remembers his dad's word when at four... He lost a puppy to pneumonia and cried for days. Never get emotionally attached to any animal, his dad had advised. It's not manly, and they're not worth it. But then, his dad didn't know Slew. His tooth-challenged girlfriend then gave him a plastic zucchini keychain he now hooks to his race pants for luck. Repelled by Stretch's long hours and meager jockey pay, she eventually ended up marrying an orthodontist who straightened her teeth for free. Don't want to see you kill yourself, she nobly told Stretch on their last date. I don't want to be there when it happens. That gloriously golden morning of May 1st was race day at Camel's Back Park. Slew worked 15 minutes on the walker, then ingested extra hay pellets and vitamins. With routine precision, the trainer, Willard, hand-rubbed Slew with alcohol and absorbing, massaging every square inch to loosen up muscles. Slew licked the trainer's hat. Willard wet-combed the horse's mane and ankle-length tail, then nodded the tail to discourage snarls. He washed down Slew's face, wrapped his legs, demanded quiet around the stables, all the ingredients and the recipe for a winner. Meanwhile, Slew paced and gnawed on the stall's wooden walls. He knew something was up. Later, the groom led Slew to the viewing stalls with the nine other horses, while all the jockeys, including Stretch, waited on the grass. The sky was so blue it hurt. 
Number 10 horse had been replaced by another entrant, having pulled an automated walker over on itself, shredding a front leg. Through the chain-link fence separating horses and spectators, bettors casted opinions and reeled in dreams. I think that one looks tired, commented a woman with candy-red lips and horn-rimmed glasses. She pointed to number six. That one's raring to go, countered her male companion, nodding toward number two. I feel lucky today, stated a shriveled, white-haired man with two one-dollar bills in his palsied, vein-webbed hands. Slew, number four, is fifteen to one, and Stretch wishes he could bet. The horses are tacked and the jockeys mount. A ball-hitched semi-cab swings the starting gate into place as a cloud passes over the sun. The prancing number two horse stumbles and falls to its knees inside the gate. It scrapes its shoulder, which gushes blood and is scratched from the race. A fierce wind stirs up, stirs up newly mown grass and blows back manes and tails. Slew hops toward slot number four in the gate, nervous tension flowing through his veins. Stretch soothes and guides him into the dark hole. The metal bar snaps shut behind them with a conclusive click. The sounds inside the metal guide are myriad. Horses whinny, shuffle their hooves, and slam their rumps against the metal bars. Jockeys clear their throats. The thick odor of anticipation sits heavily on everyone's backs. Finally, number 10 is corralled. The buzzer sounds, and the gate pops open. They're off. Number 6 takes an early lead, dirt flying in the faces, and goggles of numbers 1, 3, and 5. Number 4, double S, is dead last. As they rumble past the stands, the crowd screams. They pass the first turn. Number one, number six, ten, three, two, five, seven, nine, eight, four. A rainbow of colors moving in rhythmic unison. Double S waits patiently for the others to flag. Number seven drops back, refuses to run. Out. Later, his owner will discover a corneal scratch from a hurtling dirt clod. S and S run easily, eating up the track with reserved gluttony. They pass the second turn and still double S waits. Finally, an imperceptible nudge, a pushing forward of the reins, the whispered, let's go, and slew explodes. No crop, no spurring. As they reach the third turn, number four, slew, passes numbers eight, nine, seven, five, two, three, ten, six, and runs evenly with number one. As they make the final turn to a memory, Slew opens even more, easily gaining ground in front. Double S reaches the finish line's photo cell, two hearts pounding in cadence with the standing and roaring crowd. Another cloud passes over the sun. A stumble, a pop, a snap. Slew crumbles like a split potato sack. He groans, falling to his chest just over the finish line, rolling to his side, eyes white. Stretch flies over the horse's head, still holding the reins. Stretch spits out grainy dirt and looks back at the writhing animal. Someone yells for the vet. Numbers 1 through 10, minus 2, 4, and 7 swerve madly, whizzing past the lump of flesh on the track. Nervous. The jockeys work on cooling down their mounts. Stretch takes off his jacket, covers the horse's eyes, rubs the tiny white star on Slew's nose. Tears pour down Stretch's face. He whispers, you won, boy. I'm so proud of you and gently caressing the horse's shoulder. The horse pants, writhes, blood rushes to stretch his ears, and he notices how black the track below his knees looks. 
Later, when the TV stations replay and the newspapers reprint Stretch's tears, his father is ashamed. Weeks later, after receiving shoe polish and consolations, Stretch is plagued by persistent nightmarish dreams that reenact the sounds of two front legs breaking. The thump, pop, snap, swoosh, thud, and the ten minutes before the vet arrives to put the horse down, all blurring together. Stretch wakes, his gut wrenching, drowning in sweat, when he deposits his winning $1,000 check, he wishes his pain would go with it. Nothing appears broken on him. Stretch uses his newly acquired media coverage to voice his emerging view about racing two-year-olds. They're just too underdeveloped, too immature. Heck, they're still growing. Slew had been x-rayed just the week before, and everything looked fine. Nobody listens much. Track personnel publicly refute him. And everyone who loves racing writes him off. Just a young hothead, they say. Stretch Reed, blonde, 19 and a half, acne fading, gives up jockeying. As his own boss, he begins training three-year-olds. The nightmares stop. He coaches four horses to victory and eats three square meals a day. Now a few quotes. These are taken from 1911 Best Things Anybody Ever Said, selected and compiled by Robert Byrne. Nobody has ever bet enough on the winning horse. That's overheard at a track by Richard Sassily. One of the worst things that can happen in life is to win a bet on a horse at an early age. It's by Danny McGordy. And nobody ever committed suicide who had a good two-year-old in the barn. And that's a racetrack proverb. Gwyneth Bledsoe also writes poetry. I'll be reading The Song of My Soul, which talks about our source of wisdom. Beyond the realm of time and space, in infinite glory's dwelling place, wisdom revealed a perfect plan for his image-bearer, a finite man. Placed in a garden, a paradise, unsullied by the presence of vice, from Adam's rib rose a beauty queen, trapped, ensnared by the fruit of sin. The die was cast when mankind failed, age after age, not one prevailed. The flood, the law, and the sacrifice— no human effort could ever suffice. When light and dark were at enmity, the king stepped down into history, clothed in flesh, his glory veiled. By angel throngs, a babe was hailed. His birth, his life, his darkest hours, at constant odds with earthly powers, a tortured path of tattered dreams and daily prey to hellish schemes. Yet, in the midst of scorn and shame, with truth and tenderness he came. Our guilt he bore, his lifeblood gave. With one last breath he all forgave. O merciful judge who adopted me, what in my dark heart captured thee? You weighed my thoughts and my vanity, plumbing the void of integrity. My soul caressed by your gentle dove, wept bitter tears of abject love. You whispered words of eternity, igniting a holy ecstasy. And now laid bare at your feet I lie, stripped of pride and self I cry. 
Your mercy washes over me, leaving me cleansed, renewed, set free. In gratitude, I seek your face for a quenching glimpse of redeeming grace. Adoring eyes, a radiant smile, comfort me for an eternal while. But now I sense your urgent call, plans for good, no harm befall. I'm chosen for this time and place to take my role in the human race. Whatever uncertainties lie ahead need never fill me with fear or dread. For you alone are my all in all, the song of my soul at the final call. A friend from college, whom I don't believe we've seen since college days, and I'm certainly not going to mention how long ago that was, writes an excellent blog he calls Today's Word. Thanks to Facebook, we connected with Rich Matheson a couple of years ago. And with his permission, we're reading one of his posts today, which ties in nicely with the poem Becky just read. It's called Becoming Wise. You've probably seen it. A person who is wise, who, when they talk, just seems to have a depth and breadth to them that goes beyond others. They see things that others miss and blow us away by their insights. People respond positively to them, and they are a blessing in their community. How could you become this kind of person? Solomon was identified as a wise person and said this about gaining wisdom. He who walks with the wise grows wise. Proverbs 13.20 So what does it mean to walk with the wise? Walking with involves going along in the same direction. It means being beside, together. It implies a respect for the other, an honor of their words and lifestyle. It involves mutual consent. It implies an agreement with their standards and a trust in them not to steer you wrong. It involves thankfulness for what they are doing with you. It involves listening and being challenged by them. So, gaining wisdom and becoming a wise person means you walk with the right people. You identify those who teach you what they have learned and will help you answer your questions about life. It also means you're willing to grow and understand that growth is a long-term process and not an instant event. Growing wise is in some ways like growing a tree. It starts with a seed, buried in good soil and with a water source. From there, it needs continued nourishment, water, food, sun. It needs protection, hard to grow in a road where you're continually being trampled, and perseverance, putting up with the twists and turns of life. Okay, who is it in your sphere, or maybe outside your sphere, who can help you become a wise person? Identify them, and then ask them if they'll help you. Then humble yourself and submit to the training. Thanks so much for listening. You can find links to our authors and their writings on my website, beckylyles.com. Happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. 
Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.